Good evening, folks, and welcome back on this Saturday, the 4th day of February 2023. I'm your host, Mark Collin. Again, it's been quite a week, and let's see if we can't make some sense of the insanity almost, but not quite chronologically. We'll get to the beginning of the week in a second, but I want to start first towards the end of the week with yet another bit of, uh, you really can't believe this and you shouldn't, news, that will at least help put some of the other whoppers we're going to talk about in perspective. This comes from Zero Hedge on the latest fabrication out of the Bureau of Lying Statistics purporting to be jobs data. Coupled with massive historic revisions to both the household and establishment surveys, they write, some folks started to suspect they might beat expectations. And Shazam! On Friday morning, BLS reported that instead of the 188,000 number that was expected in terms of payrolls, the U.S. allegedly created, and I like the way they put it, a laughably goal-seeked 517,000 jobs at a time when, surprisingly, mass layoff news hits about every 45 minutes. That's up twice from last month's upward revised 260,000, the highest since July of 2022, and it's utter, total, bull, you know what. And here's the real kicker. When you see numbers like this, you know that if you have any understanding of statistics, something is amiss. This was what they called an eight sigma beat to expectations. Now, three sigma is at the end of the bell curve, less than one percent. Eight sigma means this didn't happen. Who are we kidding? Even more laughable, the upwardly revised household survey showed that employment soared by almost 900,000. Yeah, are you believing that in January? The biggest increase for um, well over a year, and it soared over a million with the December surge included. Employment has suddenly gained a massive 1.6 million, allegedly, in the last two months. I remember the old Clinton-era regime joke. All these new jobs we've created are just wonderful. And somebody in the audience says, yeah, I know, I got three of them. I honestly don't think they're still fooling anybody. And uh, the other thing that they said is, this is the um, eighth consecutive time, and that's a record too, that analysts have underestimated the degree of manipulation of the bogus figures. How's that for a laugher? Actually, the only one I've seen that seems to be drinking the Kool-Aid is the marionette-in-chief, who takes credit for the wonderful jobs data, but when it comes to what's probably the highest real inflation in American history, he reads his teleprompter and says... Are you taking blame for inflation? No. Why not? Because it was already there when I got here, man. Remember what the economy was like when I got here? Jobs were hemorrhaging. Inflation was rising. We weren't manufacturing a damn thing here. We were in real economic difficulty. That's why I don't. And here some of us thought it was just because he can't remember. Which inclines me to return now to what happened earlier in the week. Yes, the throw the Biden fewer under the bus movement is gathering steam. How many more top secret documents will it take? Whether or not the senile one remembers sticking them next to his Corvette before even the WAPO and New York Times come right out and admit to the inevitable. He was never fit to be in there in the first place. But hey, mission accomplished. They got that World War III and they killed a whole bunch of people too with the poison poke before that. Now they gotta just see if they can't turn those embers into a full-fledged fire. Meanwhile, though, there's still plenty of smoke. The Biden regime is saying, hey, if tanks aren't enough, yeah, you do it. Why not F-16s or maybe even nuclear weapons? But come to think of it, how do you know they haven't already sent those over there? Maybe if they can go the bear into a first strike, the deep state might call off the dogs. Who knows? But as of Monday, what stood out was all the competing smoke screens and all the competing fires that need covering up. 
Project Veritas is committed perhaps the greatest act of journalism in recent American history. We talked about that late last week. The video's been banned from YouTube and pretty much deep six by all the major waste stream outlets. We know why. There are some real, real bad cops in Memphis that committed an outright in-your-face beating-to-death murder that makes anything that happened to George Floyd look honestly pretty tame by comparison. The trouble is, it was five, or is it now six, black cops that committed the deed there, so the riots are going to be a little bit tougher to get going. Understandably, the leftists are having a tougher time concocting a believable narrative. But still, it has some diversionary value in covering up the continuing genocide and economic meltdown. Well, we'll take a look at all those stories over the next few minutes, but what I do want to begin with is one that uh, really ought to be front page and isn't. Still, though, I'm waiting for the criminal news networks to figure out a way to blame those with backyard chickens and preppers for this one. Meanwhile, it's fair to ask how long until the world destroyers manage to get the price of eggs up to about two bucks a piece. That'd be uh, 24 bucks a dozen for those with a recent public school indoctrination background. So let's start there from Zero Hedge and Tyler Durden. A massive fire has destroyed yet another major food processing facility. Oh, and I guess you could call this a twofer. It's also a huge commercial egg farm belonging to a top U.S. supplier. Yeah, it's not enough that dozens of food processing plants were destroyed and or damaged last year by suspicious, but oh, so accidental, we were told, fires. It looks like they've picked back up again in the new year. The biggest one this year, reported by NBC Connecticut over the weekend, where more than 100 firefighters battled a massive fire at a commercial egg farm in Basra, Connecticut, at a literally huge chicken coop at Hillendale Farms, and this fire killed about 100,000 more egg-laying hens. Hillendale Farms, it notes, is one of the largest suppliers of chicken eggs in the United States, or was. They are shipped to major supermarkets all over the place, or at least they were. And it's unclear, says the Zero Hedge Summary, what the fire-damaged Bosra Farm will mean for Hillendale's national egg supply chain. But you can probably guess what the intent is anyway. Somebody, and by now you can probably at least guess their names, really wants you to eat bugs and not much else. From there, we continued and devolved into what I guess I'd call eyebrow razors. Like this one, courtesy of Zero Hedge and Tyler Durden, Ukrainian armed forces, it says, are preparing their battle plans along the front line as the long-awaited Russian spring offensive could be dead ahead. Pun intended. Western countries are sending main battle tanks and other vehicles to at least allegedly thwart the coming escalation in fighting, or maybe to bring it on and escalate it. Last week, the Biden Fuhrer announced 31 M1 Abrams tanks were going to be sent to Ukraine, while Germany, Norway, Poland, and other NATO countries are going to send other tanks, including the infamous Leopard 2. But here's the eyebrow raiser. A press release from U.S. Transportation Command, so-called U.S. Transcom, a segment of the U.S. military responsible for transporting equipment worldwide, detailed last week that a large roll-on, roll-off vessel named Ark Integrity has loaded 60 Bradley fighting vehicles destined for Ukraine. And guess what, folks? You can track it online. Does anybody else actually remember the U.S. military advertising when they're going to send heavy equipment to places where somebody doesn't want it to go? And letting you track it en route to boot? I bet you still can't track U.S. nuclear aircraft carriers unless the Biden Fuhrer or maybe Marxist Milley has already given that information to communist China. And I know that back during the last world war, they tried to keep stuff like this secret. As of Monday, according to Transcom's press release, noting the vessel's name, data via marine traffic shows ARC integrity is full steam ahead in the Atlantic Ocean and will, maybe anyway, arrive at the port in Southampton, England on February the 7th. 
At least one Russian company, however, has offered a cash bounty, according to regional media reports and also Zero Hedge, of up to 5 million rubles, or about 71,000 bucks, for the destruction or capture of Western-made tanks, like those en route to Ukraine. And this, not surprisingly, after the Kremlin has said that tanks provided by Washington will burn and ultimately make no difference on the battlefield. Says Zero Hedge, no doubt a bit tongue-in-cheek, you got to wonder what the bounty would be for planes like the U.S. F-16. As for your host, when the Biden regime inevitably allows that too, they think they can just print the money after all. you got to wonder if the world will be able to track those via the Internet too. And okay, yeah, more importantly, since this is certainly an eyebrow raiser, you got to wonder if there's something more going on here than meets the eye. Almost certainly there is, but if recent history is any guide, it probably involves treason and destroying the U.S. military one way or another, including from within. Item, and this is an eyebrow raiser too, are you old enough to remember back when the world was sane and Switzerland was famously neutral? I can sing most of the score from The Sound of Music anyway. Well, says Statecraft, also via Zero Hedge, a group of Swiss lawmakers has now moved forward a proposal to allow countries to give Swiss-made weapons as well to Ukraine in a move that would basically soften, if not outright eliminate, Switzerland's centuries-old policy of neutrality when it comes to foreign conflicts. Said the Swiss Parliamentary Security Committee in a statement, the majority of the committee believes Switzerland must offer its contribution to European security, which requires more substantial aid to Ukraine. And while this would break from the policy of Swiss neutrality, the supporters insist, oh, no, no such thing. The measure wouldn't violate their law, since Bern wouldn't be sending the weapons directly, just transparently. Yeah, they'd still have plausible deniability, unless the rest of the world isn't quite as stupid as some of them seem to think. Here's another eyebrow raiser for sure, although considering the state that it's coming from, maybe not quite so much. The Minnesota far-left House of Representatives on Thursday, January 26, passed a, what else, socialist-sponsored bill banning the use of actual energy sources, coal, oil, and gas, for the state's electricity grid. Yeah, Minnesota's the place where they really do want you to freeze. The legislation is going to require the state's electric grid to be 100% carbon-free in 17 years, or else just maybe shut down. <laughs> and this is almost funny. This is after the Biden Fuhr banned mining in the Iron Range, a Democrat-dominated working-class area in northeastern Minnesota, while Republicans argued that the unrealistic timeline here just might endanger the lives of citizens of the state if they fail, while causing electricity prices, like, you know, we've seen all over the rest of the world, to soar. Now, here's what's funny, or tragic, or both. These are the same nutcases who want to force people, whether they like it or not, into electric cars, which, as it turns out, surprise, surprise, can't drive very far in the winter. And that's probably true in Minnesota, especially if you try to do something stupid like run the heater. And now they want to make sure not only will you not be able to go anywhere most of the time, you won't even be able to plug them in and charge them either. What kind of leftist woke nutcase thinks that this is going to encourage people to buy electric cars? Answer? That's why they need force. And this leftist wokeism, although we didn't call it that, is stupid for another reason, too. Minnesota Republican Rep. Spencer Igo of Wabana Township at a press conference said the state is ignoring the fact that they have the ability to build a clean energy future if they just stop being so stupid. Quote, the third largest deposits of copper, nickel, and cobalt that exist in the known world are only 250 miles north of this capital. But instead of investing in those resources, we've decided to export it around the world where carbon emissions will be 20, 25, or 30 times higher than if we did it here in Minnesota. And they wouldn't be done by slave labor either. 
But I can't help but think, "Ah, maybe these people just don't get it. The intent is not for Minnesotans to have anything to do with it, but when the communist Chinese come in and take over, those resources will still be sitting there waiting. One more eyebrow raiser, I guess, before we get to the stuff that's not only insane, but downright insulting to your intelligence. From Ethan Huff and Natural News, rising rates of sudden death among youth in the United Kingdom, oh, and guess what's probably the cause there, although you're not allowed to say so, has prompted the UK's school system to install thousands of defibrillators. By the end of 2023, begins the story, nearly 18,000 schools across the United Kingdom will be furnished with more than 20,000 defibrillators to address, and who could have thought this would ever happen, escalating rates of heart attack and heart diseases in Children. All, suggests the author, thanks to the not vaccines, the Zyklon B injections. At state-funded schools all across England, defibrillators are on the way, they say. Even the heart attacks and cardiac issues used to be exceptionally rare in children, especially those that would require electrical stimulation like a defibrillator. Evidently, that's no longer the case. And yeah, they won't tell you why. But there certainly are reports suggesting there's a, quote, growing and urgent need to have more defibrillators at children's schools for reasons that are totally beyond their comprehension. Next, a quick, very much related story. This one courtesy of Steve Kirsch and his Substack, also the Burning Platform, about Southwest Airlines and some of the mandated pokes for those that are at least supposed to be, in theory, flying you safely to your destination, when in fact the airlines don't give a blankety-blank, neither does the FAA, or they would ground everybody who took an experimental vaccine in violation of the FAA's own medical regulations. All right, well, the story says this. Pilots are now dying at Southwest Airlines at over six times the normal rate of death after, oh, guess what, the COVID-not-vaccine rollout and mandated, or almost, poison pokes. Kerr says he wrote to the FAA and provided them the data. No surprise, they have failed to respond. If they ever do, he says, he'll let us know. Adding, the FAA wants a war, so I'm going to give them one. I'm not going to let them get away with ignoring all the deaths and disabilities. He's even offered a reward, paying $5 per name for anyone that signs the FAA petition to investigate the injuries, especially when it comes to airline pilots and crew. And he wants a whole lot of folks to demonstrate outside of FAA headquarters. The story, and his letter says, prior to the advent of the poison poke, average mortality among airline pilots was maybe one or perhaps two pilots a year. And now it's been averaging about one per month since the vaccine rollout, according to a pilot source he has within Southwest Airlines. And just maybe, folks, since that's at least a 600% or so increase, you might call that a statistical eye-opener. But it does beg the question, besides taking a first-class FAA medical every six months, even if the EKG standards aren't what they used to be, and flying commercial airlines carrying a whole lot of people, just what else do these pilots have in common? Oh, yeah, besides the virtually mandated Zyklon B injections. Just after midweek, I saw this one from strangesounds.org. Corn farmers are now visiting D.C., says the headline, warning they could go out of business. Aw, gee, over Mexico's ban on genetically modified frankencorn. Yes, it warns. American farmers are headed to Capitol Hill to voice their concerns over Mexico's proposed regulatory ban on U.S. imports of genetically modified not corn. I call it frankencorn for a reason, folks, because ultimately it has the Terminator gene. Thank you, Monsatan. And if you've been following the real science... Uh, to put it mildly, it's not good for you or any other animals that eat it or any people that eat those animals or drink the milk or whatever that comes out of them. Still, they warn it could be the most catastrophic thing to happen to corn farmers. Well, after that is being duped into growing poison supplied by one of the most evil corporations on planet Earth. And i got to say it up front, 
I have about as much sympathy for frankencorn farmers growing poison as I do for, say, poppy growers in Afghanistan, who ironically maybe even get more protection from the U.S. military than those in Iowa. Here's the quote du jour, courtesy of Hinkle Farms' Elizabeth Hinkle to Fox Business and Madison Allworth on Mornings with Maria yesterday. Earlier this week, most farmers, quote, most farmers, my generation and younger, have never even used conventional, uh, um, I'm going to put sick after that and come back to it, corn. We're not set up for it. We don't have the equipment to do it. So it would be a huge investment if we had to go back to growing, uh, let me put it this way, folks. No, not conventional corn, real corn, the kind that the creator of the universe made, that actually propagates according to its seed after its own kind, and that doesn't destroy the innards of anything or anybody that eats it. And on top of that, she said, our yields would be decreased. Oh, so there'd be less of this crap around. How awful. You know what? And here's the real sad part of the story, folks. The only good thing that GMO corn is good for seems to be burning it, turning it into ethanol. And the problem there is it doesn't produce as much energy when you burn it in a car in the form of gasoline as it did to plant and harvest this crap to begin with. Well, says the story, Mexico represents America's largest buyer of corn. They purchased more than $10 billion worth of the 90% or more genetically modified franken crap every year. And isn't it funny that communist Mexico would give a lesson in free market economics to the once free United States? Or at least as close as anybody gets nowadays? Yeah, it turns out if the consumer doesn't want to buy the crap you're selling, maybe you'd better grow something else. Farmers fear the Mexican franken corn ban will hit their bottom line. And honestly, I'll say it again, I hope it hits it real hard. Hit them in the pocketbook so they realize, you know what? There are people out here that would rather eat real food than the crap. From bugs to bull, you know what? That Big Brother and his public-private partners are trying to shove down their throats and into their arms. And I almost said into their cars, too, but wait. They want to get rid of all internal combustion engines, so frankencorn farmers had better suck that one up now. And I look at the rest of the article, and I don't think they've even connected that dot yet. Quote, even though here in Pennsylvania, our corn stays fairly local, price is still determined by the board. So if that price goes down, it's going to affect farmers all over the United States, no matter where their corn is being sold. I can't even picture in my mind what this is going to do. It's farmers from one end of the United States to the other. It doesn't matter where you sell it or what it's used for. Buzz. And that is not true, folks. It's going to have an effect, unquote. Well, it does matter if it's actually for food and it's real corn, organic corn, or even corn that doesn't carry the GMO Roundup and Terminator genes sells for a higher price. And when people realize what it's doing to their bodies, more and more of them are, there's going to be a huge difference because one is real food, the other is not fit for anything, and that includes burning. But wait, we're not done yet. The USDA, the U.S. Death to Agriculture Agency, released this propaganda or statement. And listen to the whopper in this one. Mexico's proposed approach, which is not grounded in science, well, at least not the God we worship and call science, still threatens to disrupt billions of dollars in bilateral agricultural trade, cause serious economic harm to U.S. farmers, well, at least those that have been duped into growing you-know-what. And Mexican livestock producers, no, it won't. The Mexican livestock producers are probably pushing for this because they'd rather have their cows and goats and everything else that eats this survive. And listen to this whopper, and I'm not even going to comment on it, continuing the quote, and stifle important innovations needed to help producers respond to pressing climate and food security challenges, unquote. 
And obviously, they're not talking about the challenge of consumers who know what good food is, who'd like to eat stuff that actually represents real nutritious food. They're killing chickens by the millions, burning food processing facilities, and pushing bugs and genetically modified Franken-crap to replace it. Or maybe not. Do you see a pattern here? Well, if you don't, yet, time is running very short. What we're talking about here, folks, in short, is yet another PSYOP. Terminally duped farmers, just like those who have taken three or four of the Zyklon B injections, are roped in. In for a penny, in for a pound. They don't think they can back out at this point. And that, of course, was the intent all along. What they haven't figured out yet is that pretty soon it's not going to matter. Here's one more sign of the time stories up front today. Another sign that the PSYOP is wearing thin. A new study has been published in the peer-reviewed Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews. And I hope you're sitting down for this one. The peer-reviewed massive study on masks shows, quote, little to no difference, no effect. In other words, they were worthless all along when it comes to preventing COVID or flu infections or basically anything else, except maybe, and no, they didn't go there, stunning the brains of young children. And either reducing or demonstrating, take your pick, brain function of everybody that was subjected to wearing them. A massive international research collaboration, says this piece, summarized by Zero Hedge, analyzing several dozen rigorous studies focused on physical intervention. Your host might use another term. Against COVID-19 and influenza found that they provide little to no protection against infection or illness rates. The study has been called the strongest science to date, refuting the basis for mask mandates worldwide. Well, I've got to stop here in just a second and say, no, you want real easy, real quick, undeniable science, an engineer will tell you how you do it. You measure the effect. And as your host has said, for the better part of three years now, all you got to have is a $20 pulse oximeter from someplace like Walmart that fits on your index finger, and it'll show you in about two minutes that when you put on a mask and try to breathe through it, your blood oxygen level will decrease. How's that for science? That says something that your body needs isn't getting into your bloodstream. Do you need a degree in medicine? or even engineering, to figure out the obvious connection there. This never was real science, folks. This was always an agenda, and a deadly one at that. Idolatry of a great God that isn't science, masquerading as the real thing, and duping people who didn't know any better into literally killing themselves. Here's one of the tidbits from the piece. After nearly three years of consistent universal masking with overwhelming compliance, nearly 60% of South Korea's population has now tested positive for COVID. Major media overlooked things like the red flags from the Bangladeshi mask study and a Danish study, which had trouble finding any major journal willing to publish its controversial findings that wearing surgical masks, no, not even the cloth crap, had no statistically significant effect on infection rates, even among those who claimed to wear them, quote, exactly as instructed. Will this finally be enough for the so-called experts to admit that masks don't work? No, folks, they'll just put it down the memory hole and pretend like they never said it. Still, though, notes Tyler Durden, the Center for Death and Control still recommends masking in areas with high rates of transmission. And they're still required in socialist strongholds like New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Washington, and California, according to the Daily Mail. And you know they're still worshiping at the altar of that great god science, too, don't you? The Cochrane study included the work of researchers and institutions in the UK, Canada, Australia, Italy, and Saudi Arabia. Notice anything missing in that list? A total of 78 studies were analyzed, and in addition to the meta-analysis, they included 11 new randomized controlled trials. And furthermore, some of the doctors involved at least note that harms were rarely measured and poorly reported. 
So uh, they can't really comment on that, although, as your host said, real science will show you very quickly what the actual effects are. Obviously, if they really cared, they could have measured the increase in carbon dioxide in people's bloodstream, too, as a result of wearing a face diaper rebreather. Guess who's not going to pay for any study even remotely like that? The twin ills, folks, are called hypoxia and hypercapnia, and they've been well-known for a long time, except among the so-called experts. And you know what? I didn't even get around to mentioning yet the effect on your immune system. The idea of forcing your body to rebreathe things that it was designed to try to get rid of, whether it's dust and contaminants or bacteria. Although, remember, there have been some people that have cultured the crap inside those masks after being worn for eight hours or so. And uh, let's just say I'm not about to repeat the details because I suspect some of you may have recently finished dinner. And we've still got more to talk about here, too, which we will do right after the bottom of the hour break. Stay with us. Welcome back now to the second segment for this evening. This is your host, Mark Call. And what I want to do in this segment is take a look behind some of the big stories and even the fact that people are starting to see through so much of the fake news and realize just how badly they've been lied to, but not completely. And this first of those is so important and, more importantly, so illustrative that I almost started off with it today. But I also realized it needs a bit more of an in-depth treatment. It comes from constitutional law professor Jonathan Turley, and it's entitled, Objectivity Has Got to Go. He's quoting one of America's so-called top journalists, and I have to put the word sick after that because, you know, that isn't what we're talking about anymore, and that's really his point. News leaders, he continues, call for the end of objective journalism. Now, I've got to ask this question right up front. Is this good news or bad news? You'll kind of see what I mean as I go through it. Part of the reason I ask it that way, though, is because I don't believe we've actually had so-called objective journalism for years, probably not for decades, and yeah, let's be honest, maybe, never really ever. But at least we once had journalists who probably thought they were trying. And maybe the good news is, at least a few of them, scumbags that they no doubt are, are at least coming out and finally admitting it. Writes Professor Turley, we've previously discussed the movement in journalism schools to get rid of principles of objectivity in journalism. Advocacy journalism instead is the new touchstone in the media, even as polls show that trust in the media, and I would say rightfully, is plummeting. Now, former executive director for the WAPO, Leonard Downey Jr., and former CBS News, and i got to put that in quotes, don't I? President Andrew Hayward have released the results of interviews conducted with over 75 media leaders and... And they concluded that objectivity is now considered reactionary, even harmful. Emilio Garcia Ruiz, editor-in-chief at the San Francisco Chronicle, said it plainly, quote, objectivity has got to go. 
Or I'll say it again. Maybe these lying scumbags just need to admit that what they have been practicing hasn't been journalism for years. Notably, continues Jonathan Turley, while Bob Woodward and others have finally admitted that the Russia, Russia, Russia collusion coverage lacked objectivity and resulted in, uh, well, false reporting, media figures are now pushing even harder against objectivity as a core value in journalism. We've been writing, he says, about the rise of advocacy journalism and the rejection of objectivity in journalism, and especially in what were once called schools for it. Writers, editors, commentators, and academics have embraced rising calls for censorship and speech controls, including the marionette-in-chief, senile quid pro Joe Biden, and his key advisors, or maybe puppet strings is a better term. This movement includes academics rejecting even the very concept of objectivity in journalism in favor of open advocacy. And guess what they're advocating, folks? Communism and anything that is anti the creator of the universe and author of scripture. Even though Professor Turley won't quite go that far yet. And this is a good place for me to interject at least a bit of the commentary that I'm working up to. And that is, I've said this many times before on this show, your host doesn't make any claim to being objective. What I claim here is that I'm putting together a new show that is based explicitly and without question, and I've been open and honest about this since day one, on your host's worldview. Quite frankly, I'm not even sure if it's possible to be truly objective. But I will make this clear. There's a difference between trying to be objective and doing what Professor Turley is saying some of these folks are up to, and that's lying outright, because they've got an agenda to push down your throats, whether you like it or not. So ultimately, I will contend there's a difference between objectivity and actually reporting the facts honestly. But having said that, it's also true. The way we look at the world is simply colored by the things we've learned, the things we've come to understand are true, and the things that we recognize are important. And the very act of picking out stories to put into a mere half-hour show is an example of exactly that. Which stories do I select? Which stories might be important but I don't have time for, or you're likely to see them somewhere else anyway? And how do I order them and connect the dots? All of that has far more to do with worldview than it does with what might be called objectivity. But one thing is still true. It's either an attempt to get at the truth or it's not. So we'll get back now to Professor Turley and let him continue to make his point. Columbia Journalism Dean and New Yorker writer Stephen Call, no relation, decried how the First Amendment and what was once called the right to freedom of speech is now being weaponized in order to protect disinformation. In an interview with the Stanford Daily, Stanford journalism professor Ted Glasser insisted that journalism needed to, get this, free itself from this notion of objectivity in order to develop a sense of social justice. And he rejected any notion that journalism should be based on objectivity and said instead that he views, quote, Journalists as activists, because journalism at its best, and indeed history at its best, is all about morality, unquote. And guess what, folks? They're calling evil good and good evil, so this has nothing to do with the morality that was once called morality. Kind of like journalism, if you think about it. Thus, he said, journalists need to be overt and candid advocates for social, he left out the right word here, socialist justice, and it's hard to do that under the constraints of objectivity. Yeah, it's hard to do that, folks, under the constraints of truth and facts and even the possession of half a brain. Because let's be honest here, what a lot of those folks are doing is not reporting, it's certainly not journalism, and most importantly, it's not even honest. Lauren Wolf, freelance editor for what else? The New York Times has not only gone public with tweets to defend the Biden Fuhrer, but recently published a piece entitled, I'm a biased journalist. Oot, I'm okay with that. Well, I guess you have to give her credit. At least she's honest about the fact that she's willing to lie. There are others, including Nicole Hannah-Jones. 
former writer for the New York Times, now a so-called professor at, what else, Harvard of Journalism, and that uh, you know her as the author of the 1619 Project, history twisting at its least objective, has declared, quote, all journalism is activism. And, writes Professor Turley, she has a long record, too, as a journalist of intolerance, and has touted controversial positions on writing, and even fostered conspiracy theories. And unlike the real ones, folks, these are the kind that turn out to be nothing but whoppers. And Yao continues to early poll show that trust in the media is now at an all-time low. Less than 20% of citizens, the gullible ones, trust television or print media. And yet, he notes, reporters and academics continue to destroy the core principles that once sustained journalism and ultimately the concept of a free press and its role in our society. And notably, he adds, writers that have been repeatedly charged with false or misleading columns are generally the greatest advocates for dropping objectivity in journalism. But now they've gone to the next level. The leaders of media companies are joining this self-destructive movement, he says. And let's not kid ourselves. They're not speaking about columnists or cable hosts who routinely share opinions. They're speaking about active journalists. I have to put the word sick after that now, don't I? The people who are relied upon to report the news. Stating that objectivity has got to go is, of course, liberating in the truest sense of that word, your host notes. You can dispense with the necessities of neutrality or balance, or even, your host will interject here again, the concept of telling what is true, as opposed to what you know to be a bald-faced lie. You can cater to your base, like columnists and opinion writers. Sharing the opposing view is now dismissed as both-sidism. Been there, done that. No we need to give credence to opposing views, especially folks if they may be in accord with a God who's not permitted to be taught in the schools anymore or allowed in the public square. It's a familiar reality, says Professor Turley, to those of us in so-called higher education, which has been increasingly intolerant of any opposing or dissenting views, and I'll add it again, especially if those views have a scriptural or biblical worldview. And listen to this from the WAPO's scumbag Downey who recounts how news leaders today, quote, believe that pursuing objectivity can lead to false balance or misleading both-sidism in covering stories about race, the treatment of women, LGBTQ, plus, 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 and we're not done with the pluses yet, rights, income inequality, climate change, and many other subjects. And in today's diversifying newsrooms, he continued, they feel it negates many of their own identities, life experiences, and cultural context, keeping them from pursuing, and I'm going to have to put the word sick after this, don't I? Truth in their work. I guess along with replacing bitter for sweet and calling evil good. And this is one of the oldest concepts in the Bible, folks. They replace truth with lies. There was a time, says Professor Turley, when those who called themselves journalists shared a common identity as professionals who were able to separate their own bias and values from simply reporting the news. But now, objectivity has become virtually synonymous with prejudice. And by the way, prejudice, folks, ain't what it used to be either. Because just like real fascism has become anti-fascism, real racism is now called tolerance, and tolerance, of course, isn't. Outlets like NPR are erasing lines between journalists and advocates. NPR announced that reporters could participate in activities that advocate for, quote, freedom and dignity of human beings. Well, some of them anyway. 
in both real life and social media. Downey echoes such views, declaring what we found has convinced us that truth-seeking news media, what a whopper right there, must move beyond whatever objectivity once meant to produce more trustworthy news. And Professor Turley shares your host skepticism. Oh, really? Being less objective will somehow make the news more trustworthy? That didn't seem to have worked for years, but Downey and others are doubling down like bad gamblers at Vegas. Indeed, the whole let's go Brandon chant, he concludes, and I think this nails it, is as much a criticism of the media as it is the senile wannabe dictator infesting the White House. And here I part company with him on at least one aspect of his main point, and I'll draw a different conclusion. Says Professor Shirley, if there ends up being little difference between the mainstream media and the so-called alternative media, the public will continue to trend away from the former. Huh? No, and here he misses the point. They're trending away from the waste stream because they know basically it's the fake stream. It's full of lies, and they're looking for truth. And if that means they find it in an alternative media source, great. If not, they'll look elsewhere, but hopefully they'll keep looking. He notes that the mainstream media has the most to lose from this new movement, and among individual editors it remains popular to yield to advocates within their ranks. That's what the New York Times recently did when it threw its own editors under the bus to satisfy the mob. And as media outlets struggle to survive, he concludes, its so-called leaders are feverishly sawing at the very tree branch upon which they sit. And on that score, folks, I agree. Where he doesn't go, but I will, is to suggest that Scripture not only has always told us what the truth is, it's told us what we need to do in order to find it. Seek it out. Seek and ye shall find. Study to show yourselves approved. Use the brain that the creator of the universe gave you to discern the difference between the clean and the unclean, the lies and the truth, the holy or set apart, and the literally profane. Yes, we can learn and should to rightly divide the truth from the lies. That doesn't mean that we don't still have to work at it, or that as we get closer and closer to ultimately what's coming, it's not going to be more and more difficult, and even ultimately that uh, the lies might get so big that even the elect could be deceived. But here is one test that we cannot overlook. The creator of the universe has given a choice. We always have a choice. He's laid it before us, and it's real simple. Choose life. And yeah, choose this day whom you will serve. What the waste stream is offering is literally not only a choice of lies, but of death, the antithesis of life. Look at the real issues that underlie social justice. Well, really, socialist justice, which turns out to be just for us, not you peons. The Bible says one law for you and the stranger that dwells among you. They say, oh, no, just us. We get law, you get chaos and the gulag. Whether it's the Zyklon B injection... And don't kid yourself, they intend to stick it to you and your kids, whether you like it or not. Self-destructive, utterly communist economics, the stifling of free speech and the ability of people to make choices for themselves or defend themselves from a tyrannical government. And for crying out loud, don't think about trying to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That'll put you right in that same gulag. While the neo-journalists cheer on your prison guards or raise their children not to be slaves of the almighty state. Or even to believe that science should be based on actual evidence, not opinion that ultimately turns out to be intended to result in mass genocide. Like non-existent man-made global warming, whatever they call it lately. But neo-journalists will push it anyway, because the neo-scientists will tell them to. No, I'll say it again. I don't believe there really is any such thing as truly objective journalism. Read the Bible. You'll see that even there, there is a viewpoint, even when it's that of a prophet, servant, or apostle, 
And many times, it's written from what authors for centuries have referred to as an omnipotent or godlike perspective, knowing what's true by sitting outside and looking at the bigger picture. We can recognize lies if we simply look for the contradictions that are inevitably there when people try to distort what is true and replace it with what is not. Which leads me to a great counterexample to start to wrap things up with today that came out over the weekend, courtesy of one of the best actual investigative journalists still working out there. He leans left, he doesn't hide it, but he has one thing that your host truly admires, and that's integrity. He does his very best to tell the truth. And in this case, it's the truth that a lot of the left doesn't want you to know, which is what makes his integrity so important. Highly cited Hamilton 68, says the headline, as repeated in Zero Hedge. It's the Russiagate tracker, and says Taibbi, it's a total hoax, as well as an indirectly state-sponsored propaganda tool. The website claims to monitor a secret list of Twitter accounts, which they accused of being under Kremlin control. The claims are, of course, impossible to verify, and the group has never disclosed their uh, methodology. But as Matt Taibbi noted via Racket, Hamilton 68 was and is a computerized dashboard designed to be used by um, reporters and academics, yeah, sure, to measure Russia, Russia, Russian disinformation. It was the brainchild of former FBI agent and current MSNBC disinformation expert, oh good grief, backed by the German Marshall Fund and the Alliance for Securing Democracy, a so-called bipartisan think tank whose advisory panel includes all kinds of scumbags like former acting CIA chief Michael Morell, former Russian ambassador Michael McFall, former Hitler for America chair John Podesta, and one-time Weekly Standard editor, the infamous neocon Bill Kristol. Says Zero Hedge's summary, Taibbi has now torn Hamilton 68's so-called black box asunder after reviewing the latest batch of, what else, Twitter files. And no, you're not going to hear about this from the waste stream either. As Taibbi writes, it's not just frauds like Stephen Glass and Jason Blair that crippled the reputation of the New Republic and New York Times, respectively, by slipping years of invented news stories into those bogus pages. But now, thanks to the Twitter files, we can welcome another new member to their infamous club, Hamilton 68. If one goes by volume alone, says Taibbi, this off-sided neoliberal think tank that spawned hundreds of fraudulent headlines and TV news segments may go down as the single greatest case of media fabulism in American history, because virtually every major news, and I have to say it, sick organization in America is implicated, including NBC, CBS, ABC, PBS, CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times, and, of course, the WAPO. Even Mother Jones alone did at least 14 stories pegged to the so-called research from the group. And fact-checking sites, yeah, sure, like PolitiFact and Snopes, cited Hamilton 68 as uh, sources. Trouble is, even Twitter thought they were full of sh- Taibbi reveals Twitter was concerned enough about the bogus claims of Hamilton 68 that they ordered a forensic analysis that found out of the 644 accounts supposedly outed by them, just 36 were actually registered in Russia, most of those associated with RT, which, let's be clear here, folks, has at least as much journalistic integrity as CNN or the WAPO. And furthermore, he says, Twitter execs were shocked, shocked, I tell you, because the accounts Hamilton 68 claimed were linked to Russian influence activities online were not only overwhelmingly in the English language, 86%, but mostly, quote, legitimate people, largely in the U.S., Canada, and Britain. 
And grasping right off the top that Twitter might end up being implicated in a moral outrage, they wrote that these account holders, quote, need to know they've been unilaterally labeled Russian stooges without evidence or recourse. And the emails from the company go on to cite all kinds of other damning information that even the left knew just how bogus all of this crap was. Quote, these accounts are neither strongly Russian nor strongly bots. Another one says no evidence to support the statement that the dashboard is a finger on the pulse of Russia, 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 no, Russian information ops. And finally, this is hardly evidence of a massive influence campaign. And even Joel Roth, their trust and safety chief, declared, quote, I think we need to just call this out on the bullshit it is, unquote. And this, writes to AB, was not faulty science, it was a scam. Instead of tracking how Russia, Russia, Russia influenced American attitudes, Hamilton 68 simply collected a handful of mostly real, mostly American accounts, and then claimed that their organic conversations were somehow Russian scheming. As Roth put it, virtually any conclusion drawn from the dashboard will take conversations in conservative circles on Twitter and then accuse them of being, you know it, Russia, Russia, Russian. And how bad was it? It was so bad, even Twitter execs, before Elon Musk, wanted to out Hamilton 68. The victims of the scam, noted Taibbi, never found out they'd been used as fodder for mountains of disinformation stories about Russia, Russia, Russia. And he notes that the story demonstrates how the illusion of ongoing Russian interference worked. The magic trick was generated by a confluence of interest, basically all of them anti-American. And now we know that the Russia, Russia, Russian threat was, in this case at least, just a bunch of ordinary Americans dressed up to look like a red menace. And shame, he concludes, on every news outlet that hasn't renounced these tales. So back we go to one aspect of what may be the biggest lie in American history so far. And this comes from Natural News and what I continue to call the Zyklon B poison poke for ever more obvious reasons. Getting vaccinated for COVID, says the headline, four or more times. And the goal, of course, here is lots more for all those that are drinking the Kool-Aid. But still, and I hope you're sitting down, it results in near complete collapse of the immune system, says yet another bombshell study. Ultimately, this comes from a writer and former New York Times reporter Alex Berenson, one of the heroes in this continuing saga, who says he has in his possession evidence from a study showing that so-called booster vaccines, allegedly for COVID, pushed the immune system over the edge and caused that almost total collapse, as if we didn't know it already, of immune function. He noted that based on the study's findings, no more booster shots should go into any arms, well, unless people have a death wish. And actually, folks, this one's been kind of percolating out there in the background for a while. I've mentioned this before. Berenson wrote, I've shown it to now two physicians so far. One said he had a seizure reading it. The other said something that's not printable. And it shows that in China, where at least some lab reports say the Wuhan coronavirus was, let's just say, enhanced and gain of function to the point where it was ready for release, but they show that after the fourth injection, meaning two primary Zyklon B injections and two subsequent so-called booster shots, a person's immune system is pretty much shot. There's a lot of detail in here, and like I said, I've talked about some of this before. It's not like these studies just don't keep percolating out. Mechanistically, though, this one says, we confirm that extended vaccination sick with RBD boosters overturned the protective immune memories by promoting adaptive immune tolerance. Our findings demonstrate potential risks with the continuous use of the so-called boosters, providing immediate implications for the global COVID-19 vaccination enhancement strategies. Basically, they boil down to permanently and evidently completely destroying your immune system. 
And given what we've already seen about the Zyklon B, I'm sorry, um, Pfizer R&D and marketing strategies, with, of course, a tip of the hat to Project Veritas for actual fine journalism, just imagine how great things will be for them once people start coming down with all kinds of cancers, especially those that they thought might have been in remission. And I'll say it again, folks, but the good news, if you're a poison poke purveyor about things like cancer, is they provide oodles of plausible deniability. And they don't have to keep parroting the line, died suddenly from unknown causes. Uh-oh, sometimes, though, we are seeing more headlines like this one. This time a companion piece from Natural News, but by Kevin Hughes. Make it stop, says the headline. More and more vaccine-damaged people seem to be killing themselves. Brian Dreesen, a former preschool teacher who was injured by the not-vaccine, lamented that many others like her have committed suicide. On the Epoch Times TV show American Thought Leaders, January 19th, she said, There's a vast majority of people that do complete suicide in the COVID vaccine injury world. They do not have a supportive family. She told the host, There are only two that I know of that were from families that were supportive in watching them. The rest were people that their family members had walked away. She told host Jan Jakiliak that she was fortunate to have had a supportive family, which she said was the only reason she is still alive, after she suffered a plethora of serious vaccine-induced side effects and reactions, like tinnitus, electric sensations all over her body, insomnia, and of course, whether independently or as a result, suicidal intentions. Moreover, she also lamented how doctors are refusing to take reports of vaccine injuries seriously. Dressen said most medical professionals, sick, and I do have to put it in there, folks, sometimes, they may be professionals, i.e., they're on the take, they're taking some money, but their connection with medicine is dubious and looks a lot more like assisted suicide than anything associated with health or healing. But these so-called professionals attributed the health issues of the vaccine injuries to mere anxiety. I mean, think about it. Why would people whose so-called medical advice has damaged people, arguably even irreparably, all of a sudden turn around and admit that what they urge people to do might have contributed to their desire to kill themselves? There is, however, one obvious benefit to vaccine-assisted suicide if you're a purveyor or sponsor of the poison poke. And again, it's plausible deniability. Hey, it was self-inflicted. We didn't have anything to do with the fact that that person lost all hope of ever actually living a normal life again and decided to just put an end to it a bit sooner than what we had planned for them. And yeah, maybe there's a benefit for the insurance companies, too, if they learn they don't have to pay off in the case of suicide. Hopefully, folks, the pieces are beginning to fit together. Yes, they are lying. And yes, even worse, they really do intend to kill you. As the X-Files show famously claimed, folks, the truth is out there. No, you certainly can't count on the waste stream to tell you about it, unless you apply the 80-20 rule. But the moral from the Bible is still important. See that you are not deceived.